Welcome to the podcast for pet carers. If you're a pet parent or work in the pet care industry, then this is the podcast for you. Our show is about all things pet care, discussing everything from cats and kittens, dog training, pet nutrition, boarding, grooming, daycare, and much more. Join us fortnightly as our host and dog trainer extraordinaire, Glenn Cook, chats with leading pet industry professionals. Welcome back to the podcast for pet carers. My name is Glenn Cook. I'm the host of the show. And today I've got a special guest in studio. It's Sean Gilden. Welcome, Sean. Thank you for having me, Glenn. Do you know, every time I go to phone you and I tell Siri to phone you while I'm in the car, I don't know why, but every time it calls you Sian Gilden. So yeah. I have to tell Siri sometimes because it won't recognize you until I say Sian Golden. So I just say that now and it gets to call you. Well, after all these years, I'm used to answering to pretty much anything. So welcome to the show. The reason why we wanted to have Sean on this episode, Sean is the manager at Dural Pet Resorts Australia. She takes care of all the day-to-day operations with the staff. But prior to her being involved in pet care, Sean had a very long-standing career in a lot of zoos around New South Wales. New South Wales. What I thought would be interesting would be to talk to Sean about some of her endeavours and how she actually got into it because she is heavily involved in the primates. As such, has introduced us to primates and uh, my wife Narelle and I are going up to one of the zoos tomorrow where Sean is going to do some consulting on one of the new primate enclosures. Are we allowed to say that? Yeah, I think it's uh, pretty public knowledge now. Okay, cool. That's a bit of an honour and a privilege for us to be able to do it. But what I wanted to do was talk to Sean about how she actually got into the industry, into the zoos, and then crossing over in from a zoological area into a public area where she's now looking mostly after dogs and cats. So welcome, Sean. And how about starting us off or kickstarting the show by telling us how you got into the zoo profession? Basically, I was just like any animal-loving kid. I never had any idea of what I wanted to do when I grew up, yep. but I knew it had to be animals. Mm-hmm. Initially, when I was doing my HSC, I was also studying at TAFE 22 years ago, which wasn't heard of to do both at once. Right. Um, yeah, no, that's not. And I was trying to do my equine massage therapy course. Equine massage? Yeah. Did you go anywhere with that or did it stall? It stalled due to my love of exotics yep. in the form of getting my hand damaged by my pet snake. Right. So that crashed that career. So you had snakes before that? Yes. What did you have? What a kind? diamond python. A diamond python. Yeah. Well, we find plenty of them around some of our resorts. We do, which yeah. is I'm always excited to see them. You saw that video of me catching one at Ingleside the other day, didn't yeah, you? It was only a baby. It was a little, little itty bitty. Yeah. 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 A nice looking, very nice looking one. He was. He was nice and healthy. He had mm. beautiful colours and they don't cause any problems. They didn't do anything mm. wrong. It's not suitable had habitat for them. Yeah, they're probably better off elsewhere where people don't get squirmy about mm. seeing them and then cause them in danger because they're not mm. going to endanger anyone else. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so that derailed that career. Yes. So then I floated around for a little bit. I've had a fairly unorthodox start to animal care. Mm-hmm. From there I went into animal research. Hey, wait, sorry. It's just sitting in my mind and I can't get over it. I can't get past it until I ask you the burning question. Please. How did you get your hand damaged? Inquiring minds need to know. So she was a very beautiful snake. Her yep. name was Belle. She was about two and a half metres long. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd only had her for about six months and I tried to get her out of her enclosure. Yep. Unfortunately, her branching structures were stapled quite heavily into her enclosure mm-hmm. and she didn't feel like coming out that day. Yep. So I coaxed her out, which I should have not, and I should have just left her be. Mm-hmm. 
bit of background for those who don't know, pythons crush, but they don't break. Yeah, they're constrictors. They constrict. Mm. So if they break bones, it's going to damage them while they eat their prey. Yep. So she actually went between my ring and my little finger of my dominant hand and then wrapped around my wrist and held on for about 45 minutes. Oh, so she pinned it back. So she flipped it. So my tendon came off my joint. Yep. I had to get surgery to replace that. And then she uh, restricted the movement in my hand and I was then attached to the cage. Ah, wow. So it took my mother and I, I would have been about 18 at the time, 45 minutes to get her off me. Mm-hmm. And by that point I'd lost feeling up to my shoulder. Nerve impingement had started 22 years later and I'm still damaged. So Goodness me. I used to keep snakes too when I was mm. younger. I had children's pythons. I love them. They're such sweet little snakes. People might be cringing and squealing and thinking, you yuck. And it's funny, isn't it, that a lot of people, I mean, we're not really here to talk about snakes. Well, we kind of are. Because they're part of It's exotics. Yeah, they're exotics. So people used to think they were slimy, like mm. they're covered in slime. Yeah. They actually feel like cool leather. When you get past the whole, it's a snake. It's a pro- beautiful touch. Yeah, it is. It's a different feeling. Mm. It feels like exotic leather. They're actually nice to the touch, I think, anyway. Mm. And other people that I've introduced them to before who had phobias or didn't really like the idea of touching a snake were actually quite surprised at how nice they actually felt to touch. Definitely. Mm. And that's one thing that I love doing at one of my first zoo jobs was giving that fear factor and allowing phobic people to develop that confidence. Yeah, it's nice Um, when they've got the nice big pythons that kids can go and touch them and even have them on them if they want to and, you know, feel. And and the snakes are so placid, they just go with the flow and you lift them off one person and off on another. But you are right in what you said because even my children's pythons, like 99% of the time, they were lovely. Mm. But the term that we often use with each other is don't get snaky. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when it means that is that snakes can strike and snakes can get a bit frustrated like every other species we know, including ourselves. So when you get fearful or you get aggressive about something, you can lash out. And snakes are no different. Dogs will bite, cats will scratch, horses mm-hmm. will kick, all sorts of animals will do all sorts of things. So poor old snakes, they get they get a bad rap. They get a really bad rap. But largely what people don't realise is that it is actually illegal to kill snakes. It is. So um, Very, very heavy penalties. Yes, heavy penalties. I mean, all of the snakes that I've ever encountered, I know brown snakes can be a little bit of a problem sometimes and some of the tigers, but my experiences in living in Dural, I've seen plenty of black snakes. They don't cause a bother. They disappear as quick as lightning if they see you. They're very cowardly with people. They actually keep other snakes away, other smaller and venomous and problematic snakes. They Mm. keep them away. They keep the rats down. They keep the mice down. The pythons that we've had, same sort of thing. They really don't stick around when you go over to them. If they're they're limber and moving around, they sort of disappear into a tree and they're gone. So they don't bother anyone. They don't come after anything. They don't cause any problems with the pets. Touch wood, they haven't. That's my snake side. I think people don't realise how important they are for the ecosystem as well. Tell Um, me. They do the ratting. They do the feral birds. They do all that kind of stuff that a lot of us don't even consider. They play a role. Extreme role, yeah. Mm. So obviously we don't have a lot of carnivorous. We've got the dingoes and things like that, but we don't have a lot of predator animals aside from birds of prey. That's and, true. And that kind of animal. Mm. So they do have that that system going for them. Yep. Mm. It's funny how in Australia we're regarded as one of those places where it's everything scary. will kill you and it's scary. Yet we don't have bears. We don't have moose. Moose. We don't have coyotes or any of those wolves or any of those things. Like you go to America and there's like tons of things over there and then yet they're worried about all the things in Australia. And drop bears. And drop bears. Well, we've got drop bears. We've got drop bears. We've got drop bears. They haven't got drop bears. (laughs) 
funnily enough, I had that, did the surgery to correct my hand. Yep. Obviously could never work that kind of interaction with that hand again. So no more equine massage. No more equine massage. So Mm -hmm. that's one skill down. Mm. So yeah, I went into medical research. Okay. I decided to figure out something that I could do that earned a little bit more money in terms of animal industry. Yep. And I was always fascinated with science and things like that, but I never believed I had the talent to pursue university. So I went into that side of it where I could learn on the fringes. Yep. Love that. Mm -hmm. Got a little bit of compassion fatigue through that due to just the number of animals that you work with on a daily basis that you might not see tomorrow. What's that in? Research. Right. So okay. I was an yes. animal technician. Okay. Gotcha. So animal technicians look after all those research animals that are vital for medical uh, advancement. Yep. But unfortunately, due to that, there is, of course, there's always going to be death and wastage regardless of which industry you're in. But mm. working with the animals and seeing the progress through a few different facilities was incredible. But it's not sustainable long-term unless you are actually on the research side. So for people who don't like that, what's the alternative? There isn't one. That's the problem. Yeah. And I understand that and I've known people who are heavily outraged about that, but the problem is there's no alternative, known or accepted alternative yet. Nothing that is as capable of doing that. Yep. I have had people complain and, and do the whole, I can't believe you've done that. But what it comes down to is, A lot of people say use prisoners. That's capital punishment. You can't do that. But also the animals that are bred for these processes are so heavily genetically modified to suit that purpose. Right. And it makes them basically clones. So Mm. you can do the same test on 50 different mice Mm. and possibly get 45 different answers and then you need to backtrack and and figure out where the initial answer is that you need to follow. Mm. It is very draining, I but can imagine. it's also very rewarding in the fact that I was a part of seeing some incredible advancement in medical history. So I had a few people, even nurses, when I was at, uh, I was at a couple of big hospitals working in their animal houses mm-hmm. and nurses, when they found out that they had an animal house on site, they've been there for 10 years, never knew. Mm-hmm. How can you do that? And it was because we are helping. Unfortunately, computer models, human models have too many variances in order to make that initial groundbreaking stride. Right. Until it is... what will work, unfortunately animals will always have a place in in research. Mm. Those of people who won't have medical treatment due to ethical reasons, that's completely up to them. Unfortunately, though, any vaccines, any sutures, any procedure that you will have has always had a history in animal research. Look, I understand the compassion behind it. Yeah. And there's a lot of animals that we need to thank for their sacrifice 100%. for our going forward medically and yep. research-wise and so forth. But, yeah, look, I mean, we're all animal lovers and it still makes us feel uneasy to know that that's the case. Yeah. And maybe now with AI technology. Hopefully that, we can make strides. Yeah, hopefully that will alleviate. I mean, you never know what's going to happen in the tomorrow land of science. That's right. Mm. And people who hear the whole, like there's thousands of rats and mice that get euthanized every month. It is true, they mm. do. But those rats and mice also have huge amounts of environmental enrichment. Yep. There's ethics committees that tick off on every little procedure that's happened to those animals. Yep. They even need lignocaine to go on an injection site before they get injected. Mm-hmm. Like it's that intense. Okay. That's things that people don't see. The other thing that they've got to consider too, there are millions and millions and millions of rats and mice that get poisoned every day and die terribly and painfully when they're invading homes and so forth and people don't think twice about putting traps down or whatever they do to get rid of mice. Exactly. I know that 
fellow colleagues, I'm not trying to justify this. I'm not trying to say. No, in no way. But I know from fellow colleagues who have worked in the industry, when they say when euthanasia take place, it's very quickly. You know, it happens suddenly. Yeah. From my very, very, very limited knowledge in it, that's what I've heard no. in those sort of situations. Whereas I know that any housing dwelling or workshop or anything that I've been involved in where they've got rat sack or Whatever it is, it's I mean, horrific. it's well, they're eating it, and then you know, it's taking them up to a week to die painfully from poison. So, and then there's knock on effects to our wildlife. Yeah. Anyway, we'll get off this Aside topic. It's a, it's a bit. It's a bit so, grim. It's a bit so grim. After I decided rodent research was no longer for me, mm-hmm. um, I was there for a couple of years. I'd learnt basically what I wanted. Mm-hmm. While I was working virtually full time there, I was also volunteering and working of an evening, selling tickets for the New Sydney Wildlife World. It right. Was, it was called at the time. Yep the one that's right next to Sydney Aquarium. Mm -hmm. That was the first zoo that I was actually at. I was there before the doors opened. I got trained on the tickets. As I was doing that and I was working at the facility, I was like the animals, the bigger animals is kind of where I want to go. While I was earning money at the research facility, I was doing TAFE and earning money at um, and getting my foot in the door at the zoo. Yep. I started volunteering at the zoo at the same time. I would eventually be fortunate enough to get a casual position there. Aside from selling tickets, I was actually uh, employed as a keeper and then an educational personnel. Yep. So I was one of those people that you would see doing the reptile shows, doing the koala talks, uh, koala photos, Tassie Devil shows, things like that. Yep. So that's where my passion kind of grew a little bit more. Very cool. So, yeah, I was doing that for a couple of years as well. I kind of a workaholic. I don't know if you've picked that yet. Uh, um, no, no, yeah. considering I find you at work till seven o'clock at night sometimes. Yeah, I can't help it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would be selling tickets in the morning, do some displays in the middle of the day and then stay there till 10 o'clock at night doing tours after hours. Wow. It was any animal career, as you know, is a passion. Yes, it is. And this is no different. Yep. I'm incredibly fortunate to be on the ground floor of something that was brand new at the time. Mm. There's very, very few people that can say they've started at a brand new zoo mm-hmm. and I will never, that's one of the best experiences of my life. Which zoo was that? Uh, that was Sydney Wildlife World. Yep. So that was, uh, what is that, about 14, 15 years ago now. Right. I was there for a few years. Very taxing because I lived at Penrith and that was in Darling Harbour. It was yep. very long days, very mm. long train drives. Obviously horses, like I said, I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. And around the corner from me, maybe 20 minutes away from me, there was a facility that was hiring for an exotic keeper. Mm-hmm. I'd finished TAFE. I had gotten my certificate and I just wanted to branch out a little bit more and unfortunately I wasn't being offered full-time at the zoo. We had a huge amount of competition and I applied for this. So this particular facility uh, was research again, Yep. Uh, but it was large animal research with primates. And I had had my captive animal certificate, which is exotics, and then I had my animal technician certificate, which was the research. So I was very uniquely skilled to get that career. Mm-hmm. So I jumped into that because primate research is a lot further down the track than rodent and rabbit and fish. So compassion fatigue isn't doesn't hit you as hard. Mm-hmm. And I was very fortunate to get that. And I was there for about four and a half years and we worked with baboons. Mm-hmm. Some of the people would have seen baboons running down Royal Prince Alfred Hospital's boulevard a few years ago. I think they did, yes. <laughs> um, thankfully I was not working there at that time. That's a good thing. <laughs> yes. Not a good thing it happened, but a good thing that you weren't responsible for it. Yeah, that's right. So mm. they were the animals I was working with. Yeah. Incredible animals. I always wanted to be with a primate but didn't know where or how to get to it. Right. And that gave me my, my foot in the door and having access to these animals in a situation where they're not 
display to the public. They could display their own natural behaviours. I could do pretty much whatever we wanted with them to encourage their environmental enrichment, encourage their comfort Mm -hmm. uh, without worrying about it looking natural and and things like that. So, which is what happens a lot in the zoos. It has to look natural habitat. Yep. So at least at the colony, we could do some crazy stuff and have some fun with the animals Mm. and we can interact with them a lot more because these animals are never going to be released to the wild. Their genetics won't allow it. They're so many generations down through Australia, they're never going back to Africa. Yep, they're captive bred. Captive bred, they're never going anywhere. So we could have a lot of fun with them. And because there are long-term studies, these animals, we knew generations of them. Mm. So I was on the ground floor of quite a few amazing things. I never saw the final results of a lot of them, but I was helping get there which was really exciting for me. Fantastic. So that's where I got my start in primates. Mm. So, yeah, I was there for a few years. I raised two babies. Mums weren't very capable of raising them, unfortunately. Two little baby baboons. I did, Wilfred and Marmaduke. And take them home. Yeah, we took them home overnight, just like any human baby. They needed feeding every couple of hours. Yep. I always said if for some reason I ever had my own child, I'll throw them in the room with the baboon mothers because those babies are very well-mannered. Wow. Because my child would never be. (laughs) (laughs) So that's never happened. But I got to raise, I got to have my own children as in terms of these baboons Mm. and never again. Yep. But, yeah, they're just memories that I'll have. As you know, I've got one on my shoulder now and – they cemented my love. When you say on your shoulder, explain. Sorry, I've got, a, I've got a tattoo of my first hand-raised primate on and, my shoulder, Wilfred. And you just got that recently. That was your yeah, most recent about four most, weeks ago. Most recent one. And the other one? Is my last hand-raised baby, Diablo. Yes, which is a? Common marmoset. So mm. uh, we'll be playing with him tomorrow. Yep. And I've got to meet him and he fell asleep in my hoodie. Yeah, he fell in love with you. He did. I had a hoodie top on and he had a little kiss and cuddle and nibble on my ear and then he hopped in the hood of my hoodie and he went to sleep. Yep. Yeah, it was yeah very I couldn't cute. get him away from you. I know. Yeah. I know. Well, so, they used to say I looked like a monkey when I was a baby, so there you go. Yeah, they know. They know their own. My mum wouldn't say that. She said that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> With that, I think I think I was there for, yeah, it's probably just on four years. Mm. So hand raising was never a... A common occurrence. Yep. It was only a necessity. Mm-hmm. So we did some amazing stuff with those animals. But at that point, it became quite tiring for me because it's a very isolated area. Yep. Only two or three of us that work there and we had a large amount of animals that we managed safely. Mm. But working solo for long hours a day, was it got quite draining. So right. I decided to kind of branch out a little bit more. And again, didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. Yep. So I resigned from there and I bought a dog grooming business. Mm-hmm. So I had a on-the-road uh, mobile grooming business, a mm-hmm. franchise, and ran that for a few years. Got very, very successful with that. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, as I said earlier, my dominant hand was destroyed by a snake. So after a couple of years of fine scissoring skills and grooming in a small box for 10 hours a day, yep, didn't cope very well. Just took its toll. Took its toll. Yep. So... I ended up selling that and when I sold that, the franchise actually asked me to be a regional manager for New South Wales and the ACT for their franchisees. Mm -hmm. So I did that for a little while in conjunction with the next job. Yep. So that one wasn't available full time. So from there, I moved into where Diablo and Aztec came from, Mm -hmm. which was a small mobile zoo in southwest Sydney. Yep. And I started off as as a zookeeper working both the managing job for the franchise and running as a general zookeeper there. So from, yeah, so my normal days are very, very packed. Yes. <laughs> um, but it's a lot of fun. I've never had a job that I've been bored at. 
when I was able to go full-time at the zoo, because unfortunately the franchise wasn't able to offer me that um, as much as I did love it, it allowed me to become a leader in the zoo. Mm -hmm. It was only a small mobile zoo. They also had a petting zoo as well. And so we had exotics and domestics. So when you mean a mobile zoo, what do you mean by that? So the mobile zoo is basically just what it sounds like. We went to preschools for education. Mm-hmm. We went to birthday parties for education. We did a lot of like, a lot of bunning stuff as well. Yep. So we'd set up the exhibits and do presentations for the kids and for paying people mm-hmm. to come and interact with the animals, but also to hear us talk about conservation. Yep. Thankfully, at my previous job at Wildlife World and Aquarium, I was quite good at public speaking. Mm-hmm. As long as I've got a passion topic, mm-hmm. I can talk forever. And um, I just carry that through. So I used to drive a little van around with mm-hmm. 10 or 15 animals in it and do a display all around Sydney. And you brought them to work for a Christmas party one year. We did. Yeah. So we got to safely meet some animals that you would never normally get to meet up close and personal, like two little marmosets. Yep. A saltwater crocodile. Yeah, Lillian. Little saltwater crocodile. A possum. Yeah. Um, do we have the bird? Yes, we had the bird. We had a, a Eclectus parrot, I think yep. it was, the female Eclectus parrot. Yep. And what was it, male? No, green? you had male, you had Wally. Yeah, he was green. Yep. Yeah, he was the green one. Yep. And an olive python. Yes. Everyone got to meet them and hear about them and what they do and what their diets are and learn yep. a little bit more about them. So, yeah, it was that was great. That was really, like I said, you know, I got to interact with some marmosets up close and that's not something that you would normally get to do. Like no. that is quite an experience. I'm not one of those sort of people because I've been in pet care for a long period of time. I'm not one of those sort of people who encourage people to fiddle and handle with animals and everything like that. But they don't let you do anything they don't want you to do either. Oh, like they the, do not. the marmosets, like they will scold you and school you if you try and get rude or obnoxious with them. Mm. Whereas they're quite happy to sit on your shoulder and eat their yogurt. Mm-hmm. Was it yogurt they were yeah, it was, nibbling uh, on? Protein yogurt. Protein yogurt. They were the people who were involved in bringing them out, wouldn't make them do anything they were uncomfortable with. They were very respectful. So were the staff. They were just delighted to have them sit on their shoulder and get a photo taken with them. So it was nice. And the animals were, as you are, I'm a good indicator of what stress looks like in animals. And uh, at no time did I see any indication that you would say is that a high level stress. It's just normal day to day. This is what happens. They're habituated very well. Yeah, definitely. So credit to the keepers who look after them and maintain and manage them and keep them fed because they looked all very healthy. They had beautiful pelts and coats and skins and everything like that. You know, the snakes were gleaming. The crocodile looked great. Possum was nice and plump and furry (laughs) and so were the little marmosets and, yeah, they look great. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, they was um, very, very fortunate to be at that facility. Mm. It was very hard work, very strenuous work because you're running around doing everything, trying to keep all the animals healthy as well as making sure that what we're exhibiting is international kind of level stuff. Yep. Because we want to make sure that you don't do public presentations like that just so somebody can look at a fluffy animal. Mm. You do it so they learn something. Exactly right. And it's like what you do here. Yep. A lot of fun. We did, as you know, we had the two baby marmosets. Both of those were actually full brothers. Mm-hmm. Aztec was the first baby who is kind of my heart animal. Yep. Um, I will get him tattooed on me eventually. Mm-hmm. But the reason we hand raised him, so primates you don't hand raise for any reason. Mm-hmm. You don't just go, I want to have a baby monkey. You have to have a reason to have them pulled from their mother. Yes. Dana and Chachi were the parents. Um, <laughs> Chachi. Yep. <laughs> or was it Bubba? I think it was Chachi. And Dana had a habit of throwing triplets. Right. Twins were very common in mama sets. Mm-hmm. 
Dana had a habit of throwing triplets. And unfortunately, as soon as they get the third one, the weakest one always gets dropped. Right. Well, generally gets dropped. Yep. So we watched them for a couple of days. Unfortunately, Aztec was abandoned. Mm -hmm. So I collected him and I raised him. And then two years later, same thing happened with Diablo, which is why I hand raised two baby mammoths. Wow. So we can train them to do these kind of stuff like they do come out on harnesses and like very, very heavily conditioned to do so and mm. they actually quite enjoy it. I mean, you helped me harness one up before the party. Yeah. You, you no just, issues whatsoever. No, no, he pretty much, I think the only thing he got a surprise of is I think he wanted to stay in the cage at one stage and you <laughs> said, no, you're coming out and he, he had a little tantrum. Yep. But once you got him out, he was fine. He slipped his harness on, took his little protein yogurt and away he went. Yep. Yep. But and dogs and cats do the same. Exactly. You know, right. like we've got a myriad of dogs and cats and that's about to happen to us now over the New South Wales school holidays. Some of them are no different, you know, like we get cats that sit in their cage so we just have to open them and let them come out in their own time or we get a dog that comes off the van and gets a bit stroppy when it comes yep. out of the back. But once they're out, they're like, oh, this isn't so bad. Yeah, hmm. and and to be fair, that's the first time those boys had seen me in about 18 months. Right. And they'd seen me coming out of, of a crate. So. Yep. Um, I wasn't. I was expecting a little bit of a pushback from them, and they did for yep. two seconds. And then they warmed up. And then they realised who I was, and they're like, "Oh, yeah, okay, we're yep. good." Yep. Um, but no, he- heavy amount of training. Always positive conditioning with them. They want to come out. And they want to interact because yep. they have that familiar aspect. Yeah. So I was there for a while. Loved it. Again, all the experiences that I wanted. Mm-hmm. And then I got asked to go back to the franchise again, but unfortunately, they couldn't give me the hours that I needed. So that didn't happen. And then Sydney Zoo opened. Yep. Well, Sydney Zoo started advertising for employees. Mm-hmm. Those of you who don't know, Sydney Zoo is a brand new one in Western Sydney, in right. Blacktown. So from me going from Sydney Aquarium and Sydney Wildlife World opening that zoo to move straight in, well, a couple of years down the track in building and helping set up a second zoo is almost unheard of. Yep. Everything in my life, I've been extraordinarily fortunate in my careers. I have worked extremely hard to get there. Mm. But I kick myself with how lucky I've been with what I've received mm. and how I've how I've man- managed to get to these positions. So, well, you put in the work. I have definitely put in the work. But Generally, don't see that sort of return happening to people who don't offer a high level of interest or a high level of expertise or something like that. So yeah. it doesn't just get gifted to people. Yeah. I would dare say knowing you and knowing how passionate you are with those sort of things, you would have worked your butt off. I definitely did that, yes. yes. Mm. <laughs> Unfortunately, it meant that as much as I wanted to stay with that company, I wanted the experience of a wider range. Mm. So in that particular interview, it was um, similar to the interview I had with you and the directors here, mm-hmm. a panel interview I don't get uh, scared very often. Mm. It's the same kind of deal. And my curator, after I was offered the job in that interview, said to me, what's your favourite taxa to work with? And I said, I don't know. I haven't worked with enough of them to figure it out. What's your favourite what? Taxa. Species. Yeah, right. Okay. Sorry. Um, Yeah, we don't talk zoo on this channel. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) Um, So species, groups of species. Right. Yes. Basically, it's like, I don't know. Mm. And the reason I wanted to move to Sydney Zoo was because they were going to get apes and I hadn't had the opportunity to work with apes. Cool. I was fortunate to have been offered that job. Mm. The reason I was offered that job was because of my baboon experience yep. and because of my small primate experience from there. And, yeah, we are building that zoo for 12 to 18 months. A couple of conversations that you and I have had which have been very interesting to me and I have seen documentaries and so forth where it's mentioned it online, but one thing that 
a lot of people don't realize because they see the best of it. But some of these apes and monkeys can be very dangerous. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. They're terrifying. Yes. And I remember when the Netflix series of Joe Exotic came out and he made a lot of discussions how when the chimpanzees put their hands outside the cage, you would only touch the back of their hand, not the front of their hand. Yeah. He made reference to like if they get you, they're so strong that they can literally pull you into the cage and rip your arm off. So I was horrified but also fascinated. So I was in a bit of conflict about how I felt about that. Yeah. But uh, you confirmed to me that, yes, they can be extremely dangerous and you have to have your wits about you when you're handling, managing and transporting apes and monkeys. Definitely. Mm. And we have for any of the dangerous animals, like the officially dangerous animals, not just the hazardous, we do it for the hazardous as well. So hazardous could be things like spider monkeys, capuchins, things that can hurt you. Spider monkeys? Yeah, they're pretty strong. Wow. Big teeth. They're only so little. Big tall ones with long tails? Ah, I'm thinking of the wrong one. The capuchins are the other one you might be thinking about, Mm. like the uh, knight from the museum. Mm. That's a capuchin. I was thinking about those tiny little monkeys. What are they called? They're little weeny, weeny, weeny ones. Oh, the tamarind. Tamarinds. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, anything that can hurt you but not necessarily kill you is generally called hazardous. Mm -hmm. Anything that can definitely mess you up is dangerous. Right. Um, And most good zoos, uh, most uh, zoos that care about their staff, have a two-keeper policy right. in terms of those animals. So yep. anytime you're entering an area, a senior keeper has the keys. They're the only ones that are touching those padlocks. Mm. The second keeper goes around and physically checks all those padlocks yeah, before good. you're entering and exiting and all that kind of stuff. I was very fortunate enough to work with the chimps and the orangutans, mm-hmm. not necessarily as much as I would have liked to in the long run. My focus was on building the baboon troop right. there and focusing on their training and conditioning. Yep. Uh, but I did get to work with them on and off throughout my time there, which was incredible. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it was very much uh, if the chimps put their fingers out, they had to be full extension out, your hands had to be very much minimally touching them if you are permitted to touch them. Mm-hmm. So, But in saying that, they were so interactive. They're so much fun. Mm. They're dangerous and scary at times, but I kind of like that side of the fact that you have to be on your wits and you have to, you can't outthink them. They're smart. They're too smart. Mm. But you have to be aware of your surroundings at all times and work with them instead of helping them decide what decision they want to make. I can't remember what show it was, but there was footage. It was a documentary of somebody going around to rehome. Could have been Joe Exotic. I can't remember what it was, but there was a chimp in a backyard and it was a male chimp. Mm. It belonged to an elderly couple and they'd had him since he'd been a baby. But they were showing him in the backyard while the guy was standing out with him and he was having a tantrum because somebody else was in the house and he wanted to get in there. And they were advising, they said, whatever you do, don't go out there because Mm. he will probably kill you in the state of mind he's in at the moment. And he was picking things up which were heavy for a human being and hurtling them like they were cardboard boxes. I was amazed at how quickly he could move and how much ferocity he actually had and how much of a tantrum he was throwing. I mean, I'm used to dogs are my thing, dogs are my shtick. And, you know, as much as we know what dogs can do and how damaging they can be, it was just terrifying to watch the power and grace that this animal was throwing himself around in the backyard and just to think that that guy was out there. And I was thinking, well, what if he vents or his frustration is taken out on the owner? And that I think that was the concern. I think that they had realised... We're, into that danger we're point. now into a position where we can't look after this yeah. animal. He's become wild. Yeah. Mm. I think a lot of the times 
I mean, there are some species that you can definitely hand re integrate them back into the troops and not have too much of a big issue as long as you do it correctly. It's a bit misconstrued, I think, sometimes because when you see a lot of these shows where monkeys are, when I say monkeys, I should say chimps. Primates. Primates, apes. When they're interacting with people and they, you know, like they dress them up in little clothes and, yep. you know, cuddle them and they're hanging out with them and so forth. I mean, Clint Eastwood back in the in the 70s and 80s, you any know. Any which way but loose. Any which way but loose. And he used to have the male orangutan Clyde, which was with him all the time. And you, you just look at that and you think, oh, they're so loving and they're so friendly and they're just like us. But no, they're not. No, they're not. <laughs> One thing people don't realise with a lot of primates, orangs are similar but chimps and baboons very much the same in terms of they can run as fast up a steel mesh wall as they can on the ground. Wow. You would see them doing circles through the habitat and they would reach speeds that you wouldn't even consider. Oh, they're frighteningly fast. Yeah. yeah. And then obviously the strength that comes with it. That's why you always have to be so pedantic about how safe you are mm. to make sure that we stay safe, make sure they stay safe and make sure the public stay safe. I think somebody was saying that a chimp, the strength and power of a chimp, if a full-grown athletic man was to achieve the same strength, it would be five times as strong as that one singular person. Yeah. Is that accurate or? From what I understand, it is. Yeah. Um, but we also share 98.9% of our genetics. Mm. So if on the very off chance that you lose a lot of blood and you've got a chimp that has the same range of blood type, you can actually do a transplant. Wow. So you might get a bit of superhuman strength that way, maybe, but that's... Not, not going to try it. No, I wouldn't recommend <laughs> it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, um, they are very close to us, but, yeah, we will never reach that capacity. Mm, interesting. Yeah, but they're so individual. Mm. We had quite a few... Uh, these chimps were very, very humanised from Germany and they were very much their own people and they all had their own personalities. Some liked their warm tea in the morning. Some really? liked a little bit of a treat in the afternoon. If you didn't give it to them, that's when they'd kick off. Yep. And so yeah, they were very much they knew what they wanted. There was a fascinating experiment done quite some time ago to indicate recognition of self. What they did was on monkeys, they put a dot on their head and then they showed them the image of themselves in a mirror instead of the monkey realizing that it had a dot on its head, it just wanted to attack itself because it didn't realize what it was actually seeing until they did it with apes. And apes were a bit surprised, but then they realized, oh, that's me and my image has changed and I've got something on my head and they were able to understand that that was a reflection. It took them a little time, but they habituated to it, understood that my appearance has changed, that's me, I can see in my mouth and I can see me touching my eyes and Mm. so forth. Whereas the monkeys would constantly see it as a, a rival or a foe or yeah. another monkey and keep hitting it and attacking it. It was interesting. I saw one of a bear and they had a trail cam set up. They had a mirror on a trail and the bear is just sauntering down a path and it comes across the mirror and sees itself and like instantly reels back and then it goes behind the mirror and it like it's looking for where is this bear gone and it, it's not there. So it goes back around the other side and sees its image again mm. and does the same thing and starts pounding on top of the on the mirror. It's very fascinating how animals conceive the world. Yeah. Allegedly it's a test of understanding yourself and the concept of self. Yeah. I can't remember which study it was now. There's so many studies I've read and, and been a part of. This one came out of Europe somewhere I think. But they put an orangutan, it was at a zoo, Mm. they had an orangutan in a room with stagnant furniture that they couldn't move. And they put a human in a room near it, same setup. Their goal was to get a nut out of this long perspex pipe. Mm -hmm. 
A human figured it out a while after a while. Our orangutan looked at it for a couple of minutes, kept looking. They had access to water, bedding, whatever else they kind of needed. Orangutan went in and started picking up water in its mouth and tipping it into the Perspex pipe and it floated the nut. And the human took maybe 50 or 60 times longer wow. to figure it out. So, so that's an interesting concept on intelligence, isn't mm-hmm. it? Because I remember when Cameron Ford came out here first and he was doing a discussion or a seminar on scent detection and there was also a, a series where elephants – so what they did was they had elephants or pachyderms for mm-hmm. people in zoos. What they did was they tied food up up high so it was out of reach of the elephant and the elephant wanted it. So what they did was they gave the elephant a cane with a hook on the end of it. And what the elephant was supposed to do was be able to use that cane to be able to hook the food down. But none of the elephants in any of the captive zoos could work out how to do it. Somebody said, well, there you go. They're not as smart as what people say. Somebody else who was deep thinking said, actually, let's change it to putting a platform, you know, something movable like a tire or something like that, which will give the elephant enough height to to then be able to stand on top of it and reach it. Immediately, the elephant pushed over the tire or the box, whatever it was in the enclosure, got on top of it, and then they were able to reach the food and bring it down. That was replicated all over the world in other zoos, and all of the elephants displayed the same behavior. So what they realized was the reason that the cane didn't work wasn't because the animals were stupid. It was just that it was cutting off their olfaction capability, their ability to be able to scent the food Mm. and be able to find where it is, locate it with their trunk, because that's their nose. Whereas where they did have the object, they were able to push that over, use their nose because they can't see it because it's up above the head. They're limited in their eyesight, but they can use their nose and they can locate it through olfaction. So immediately that changed perceptions. If you try and solve problems with a human way of doing it, it may not be the most efficient way. And we can learn from each other. Some apes will mimic things that they see us doing. There have been indications of that where people have used tools and apes have observed people and, you know, they've watched people in the bush, Kalahari's and so forth, Kalahari Bushmen. They've watched them doing things and they've been able to observe that they will actually pick up the thing that they were using and mimic their behaviour and then find out, oh, I can use this tool now to efficiently do my job. Or vice versa is that people have watched apes and birds and other mammals and animals out in the wild where they've noticed that they have used a particular way to crack a nut or do yeah. something. Or I think the measure of intelligence is often skewed. Definitely. Yep. It goes through primates all the way. Yep. A lot of people, and it's the Zooey and me, a lot of us feel the same way, but when people go, it's a different breed of monkey, mm-hmm. when in reality that baboon can't breed with that mandrel. Yep. It might be in the same family, but there's no way that those species can interact. Mm. Unlike dogs, where as unethical as it could be, a chihuahua could meet, mate with a Great Dane. Yep. You don't have that crosshatch in actual species. That's why I love working with all the different types is because you're learning so many different things from each of them. Mm. So baboons, which obviously my wheelhouse, they're ones I know the best, aside from marmosets, they're so instinctual. So you can get them to react. Mm. Um, anything that they do with you is usually a reactionary. They don't really stew on it later. They might be scared of you for a little bit if it was a traumatic thing, but they don't reconsider what has happened. Mm. Whereas as you go up the orders, so the capuchins, um, which are a little bit smarter than uh, baboons or a little bit more conscious than baboons, they will use tools, whereas baboons won't. And then you go up even higher, whereas chimps and orangs, gorillas, they will actually plot and think, you offended me six weeks ago. I might get you back today. Really? Potentially. Um, you do see them considering you see them brain their brains working over and you see them actually functioning as in, okay, this got me this reaction this time. I'm going to try it again. 
in a different way and see what else I get. Fascinating. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So that one I was there for I think two and a half years. We opened the zoo. We opened the zoo in COVID. Actually, no, sorry. We opened, the first Christmas we opened was in the bushfires. Yep. Our first three weeks was covered in smoke and horrendous horrendous temperatures out there in mm-hmm. Western Sydney. And then we got shut down with COVID. Yep. So the experience that I'll never be able to get back. But with any place, you're always doing different things. You're always learning different things. But I felt like I needed to branch out a little bit more. I love working with the baboons. I love the team. Incredibly love the team. They're still, all of them are still very, very good friends with, with me. And we do catch up fairly regularly as well. We haven't for a while, but we, we try to. But I just wanted something else. Yep. And I was going to go back to the franchise again. Mm-hmm. My position had opened up to a bit more of a full-time capability. So I went to do that. And then I saw a job advert for Pet Results Australia. And the rest is history. The rest is history. I may have impressed a couple of bosses on the interview table. I can't remember if I did or not. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Well, you're still here. <laughs> <I'm> still here. <laughs> so, yeah, like I said, do you know what I want to do when I grow up? Mm. Still don't. Still playing. Still well, having fun. It's a good thing about not growing up. Yeah. Yeah. Now I've built an incredible team here. Yes, you have. Work with bosses as some of the best I've ever worked with. I know you're in front of me, but. You're too kind. I don't know where it'll be in a couple of years' time. I want to be part of it to keep growing. Mm. But I've never worked with a group of people that are so passionate and desperately want to work with these animals. Every zookeeper wants to work for their animals. Yep. They don't have their own voice. Mm. But the staff here are even next level. Yes, they are. Obviously the manager here. Um, I have some control over who I hire and who I don't, but the people who have come on board just impress me day after day. Well, that's a lovely thing to hear and and that's a big part because of you. It's the culture that you provide and it's what you nurture that will actually generate the response as well. People rally around a good manager and they respond as such. It's very important for people involved in pet care of any type that, number one, they want to be in the job and, number two, they do the job. It's very, very reassuring for people who trust us so much to leave their fur babies with us. I know some people don't like that phrase, (laughs) but, you know, to them it is. It's their companion animal, their best friend, their fur baby, whatever you want to call it. It's something that they feel incredibly in love with and incredibly Mm -hmm. passionate about and they're incredibly trusting to us and our wonderful staff that they allow us to take them for periods of time. It's great that we do have staff under your guidance that listen to what you instruct them to do, take on the vice of many years of dealing with different types of animals. And I think that adds to the expertise of what we offer here as well is that we've got great staff, but we've also got a lot of management that are experts in their own fields. Definitely, You know, they've had a lot of expertise in raising, in training, in being involved in different aspects and know how important it is and how vital it is to get it right and understand not only just how to give them food, but also how to give them medications and how to understand about environmental enrichment yeah. and how important that is. And so the little nuances that the nuances. people won't, wouldn't see. Yeah. Hey, Sean, that's about all we've got time for today. Sounds good. I really want to thank you for coming in and telling us a little bit about your history and that gives some of our listeners a bit of an insight on who are the people behind Pet Resorts Australia because they are the major sponsors of our show. Yeah, that's phenomenal. It's it is. It's a good thing that we've just been nominated as a finalist again. Again, another again. award. Fantastic. All these awards. We'll run out of cabinets to put all these trophies in soon. Hey, folks, so if you want to board your pets or do any daycare and training or all of the fascinating services that we offer here, you can go to our website, which is petresortsaustralia.com. 
We've got locations all up and down the eastern seaboard of New South Wales and now into Queensland as well. You can find all those locations on that website. It tells you all about our services and the locations that we have. So if you go over to PetResortsAustralia.com, you can find them. And while you're there, you can also look into dog training with Canine Evolution, who is our other major sponsor of this podcast. So it's canineevolution.com.au. So it's C-A-N-I-N-E, evolution, one word, .com.au. And I have to say that because sometimes people go K and nine and then evolution and then they realize they're not looking at the right place. So that's canineevolution.com.au who uh, work in a great partnership with Pet Resorts Australia to do boarding and training, private lessons, home lessons. We've got everything, and almost anything you need in order to get your dog under effective control and management and teach you how to do some fascinating tricks as well. You can learn that from Canine Evolution. Please, if you do like our show, leave a review for us on anywhere that you've listened to our podcast. If you want to contact us, you can go into the show notes. We've got all the contact details there and you can let us know what you think. I want to thank Sean for joining us today and telling us a little bit about her history and fascinating stuff. Might get her back on the show some other time to tell us a little bit more about her work with baboons and zoo animals. I would love to. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Sean. Really appreciate it. Bye, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>